Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today, I'm taking our conversation from uh, a letter of one Jude, the New Testament. Tonight, as I share, you'll understand why this particular letter, this particular book had to be in the Bible. A lot is going to be shared. And I believe that your lives are not going to be the same again. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, as he introduces himself, the brother of James, he writes to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. And he was intending to write about their common salvation. And it was needful for him to take that as a course. But... Something changed spiritually and instead he found himself writing to the church by need, exhorting them that they should honestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So the intention of Jude changed to a deeper conviction. He wanted to talk about the common salvation and then he finds himself telling people, You know, I feel there's another conviction in my spirit that is deeper than what I wanted to share about. And that was that men should honestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. He did not say contend for faith. He's talking about contend for the faith. The holistic understanding of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the Christendom at large. And this is why he speaks of this contention. He says, there were certain men which crept in unawares, who were before all ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord. And he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their habitation, he has preserved in everlasting chains under the darkness and to the judgment of the great day. And he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and other strange flesh, has set forth as an example the suffering and vengeance of eternal fire. And so he gets back to these men and says, Likewise, these people are filthy dreamers. They defy the flesh, they despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, When he contended with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, thus not to bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. And he says, but these people speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. And verses 11 says, war unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. And perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Praise God. I want to emphasize that verse 11. 
They have gone in the way of Cain and run greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These people, he says, are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit. He says they are twice dead, plucked by the roots. They are raging waves of the sea, forming out their own shame, wandering stars. He calls them, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch the seventh from Adam also spoke about these people. So the man Enoch has well prophesied in his book about the same people. And if I could skip because of time, in verse 16 he says, These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They speak so they might be favored and find advantage before men and before God. And he tells us, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. And they separate themselves, sensual. They have no spirit in them. He says they have no the spirit. They don't connect. If you read uh, from the Amplified Version, these people are separated. They are indifferent from the person of the Holy Spirit. They are destitute, the Bible says, of any higher spiritual life. That means they can never excel or grow spiritually. Those are very angry and rude words to be spoken by a New Testament writer. And more so in the grace dispensation. Okay? They're called worldly-minded. They're called carnal creatures. They're devoid and destitute of the person of the Holy Spirit. Their spiritual life can never go higher. And is warning. And these, he says, have crept in unawares. So they're not outside church. They are in the church. But... There is a reason why the scriptures emphasize, again, verses 11, the way of Cain, the greediness of Balaam seeking reward, and the gainsayings of Korah. There's three men, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Those men define so much. The spirits that worked within them define so much what Jude is trying to say, what God is trying to tell the church today. Of course, there have been questions. One time I was with a group of ministers where we fellowship, having a cup of tea and sharing about the goodness of God, the things of the Spirit. And then a question, you know, arose, a minister, a guy said, but what is really wrong with the body of Christ? What is really wrong with Christians? So we push him to elucidate, you know, say more, what do you mean what is wrong? Okay. And he says, am I alone in this to feel that it seems as though some of the saints in the church are bewitched? or that there's a sort of force or power that is operating in the body of Christ today that we don't have a name for, that some things, even in the most obvious sense, are not obvious to people who are expected to know, to be mature, to know the ways of the Spirit. And then he went on and on and on and on and on and complaining. And as he was complaining, raising his conviction about these things, I could feel that he was dealing with something that I believe quite some Christians, believers, are asking themselves as well concerning the church. There is a lot of madness today in the Christendom. And you almost as well think, how come it's not obvious for certain people that this is just not the way of God? It's just not the way of God. Look at the wars that are in the body of Christ. 
how one brother fights another, how one bites the other, how another tears the other, how one back bites, you know, mud slays another, how one blackmails another, how one transacts and uses another. They use fellow ministers as weapons and their fellow ministers use them as well. We see priests that are no longer connected, you know, to the cares of people that they are willing to manipulate and rob them of everything as long as they have their end in line satisfied. The love of money, filthy lucre, you know, has gone so, so disturbing in this dispensation. We have people that are indifferent to the needs of the hour. We have men who have titles, bishops, apostles, prophets. They have these things. They wear things. But when they start to speak, the way they act, you know, the gossip, the slander, the cheap talk, the hatred, the backbiting, the thieves in the church, everything. There's just a lot. There's just a lot. The breaking offs of the church and how those come and serve two, three days and they leave and they want to take one, two, and then another one comes. and You know, people break and then they leave and then they take another group, two, and then you see different churches, a, a collection of prodigals leaving one space and another, and then how some people do not see things the way they're supposed to see them. If as a man of God, you know, your ministry is frustrated, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to fight carnally or are you supposed to pray spiritually? Are you supposed to engage in your sensual understanding of things? When a man is under pressure, when a man or a woman of God is under pressure, what do they do? Look at our worshippers. You know, they're in the choirs, they're singing, but they're very unstable. Look at the people that serve in ministries. They're very, very unstable. They're unreliable. Some have refused to grow, you know. So there's many things that are in the church. And sometimes you ask yourself, what is wrong with the world? Okay? And then we have another superficial definition of Christianity and men of God with a glamour and the pomp. It's just so much, so much. Today, men of God look like the mafia. <laughs> you know, it's just so much. And then this little young boy who is also admiring this man or woman of God, and he thinks that this is the way things go. This is how ministry is built. You know, one time a man invited me for ministry, and the guy says, you know, you don't know how to work. He meant to say that I don't know how to get money from people. He tells me, you're a very gifted fellow. You are anointed, but you just don't know how to collect money a certain way. We need to go for a cup of tea. I need to teach you how you can get money from the tens of thousands of people that you preach to. And this was a man supposed to give me a lecture. And how long has he been in the gospel? More than 25 years of ministry. And he knows not even the basic principles which be of the oracles of God. But it's not him. What of the sons he's raising? What of the daughters he's raising? Some pastors are teaching their own protégés how to rob the church, you know. You see sons and how sons fight uh, their fathers and fathers fight sons. And then you see them on social media. You see a spiritual father writing about a child, their own person, or somebody who served them. You understand? He gets a little small kid, 10, 15 years, and then starts telling them, oh, this person is like this. Oh, this person is like that. And he calls himself a spiritual father. And then you find a son who is fighting his father. He wants to destroy him. He has to tear him at every side. Even if you tell him stop fighting, he will not stop fighting until he kills him. So it's just these things. It's the little divisions. It's the indifferences. It's the wanting of power, the control, you know, the influence of money without the understanding of how it works. And some are now taking the spaces of being reputable because they probably have connections with some of the highest people in governments and how they have this much money and so it's just so questioning so
People have questions. Ministers have questions. Where is the church going? Where is the body of Christ going with this? And if we continue this way, what are we going to give the next generation? Even the words I want to speak, I don't think I carry the full articulation of them. But your hearts understand what I'm saying. So, I used to ask myself these questions as well. And then, the Lord took me in Jude and he showed me a lot. And he told me, it's these three. And there's a reason why Jude writes about the way of Cain, the greediness that puts error on the life of Balaam for reward, and the gain sayings, of course. If you can understand how these three work, specifically the spirits that work under these three individuals, you'll understand what is working in the church. Because each individual represents a particular spirit, the particular reason why we have the drama, unfortunately, that we have in the body of Christ. And so I want to talk about those three. I want to talk about the amateur or the novice, number one. I want to talk about the adulterer or the man that transacts with two realms. And number three, I want to talk about the entitled. Those are the three fellows. Those are the three, the novice or the amateur, the fellow who is not yet there, okay? And the adulterer or the man that transacts with two realms. And third, the man which is entitled. And as I continue to share these things, you'll understand why I'm sharing them. Let's begin with Cain. We all know the story. In the beginning, Adam knew his wife Eve and they bore a son called Cain. And they have another child again who was Abel and Cain was a tiller of the ground, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Those are two sons. You know the story very well. A time comes where these two are supposed to give sacrifice, worship to God, and the Bible is clear that Cain got a portion of his ground and brought to the Lord, and Abel got the fastlings of his animals and his flock and the fat thereof presented to the Lord, and the Bible says, and the Lord had respect and to Abel's offering, but he had not respect on Cain's offering. And the scriptures tell us Cain was wroth. He was angry, and his countenance fell. His countenance fell. And so, when we say the way of Cain, what do we mean? What was Cain's real problem in this era, in this mistake, in this challenge? Because we see later, he gets angry, turns to his brother, and slays him because he's jealous. And many people teach, oh, Cain was a jealous fellow. Jealousness was not Cain's issue. There was something bigger that led to the jealousness, that led to the envy. So sometimes you see men and women of God which are envious and because of envy they hate and then speak evil of other ministers and stuff and write about them on Facebook. Thank God some of us are not on Facebook because we don't have time. We're not social commentaries. We are ministers of the gospel. So you can't be on Facebook typing about another man of God and what they do, commenting on what a man of God is doing. No, no, no. If I'm on Facebook, I'm on for the ministry. If I'm not preaching, if we're not sharing a sermon or a devotion, I have no business uh, with being a social commentator. But some people are like that. They want to give opinion about everything. They want to give, you know, their mind about everything. And they bad mouth and speak evil. And, and sometimes you see that there's envy, there's strife in their hearts concerning the success of a brother and a sister. Sometimes you ask yourself, why do they do this? And sometimes you think it's the envy on them. But envy is simply that jealousness is simply a manifestation of an older demon. And this is what I want to show you and express in word touching Cain. The mystery is in Genesis chapter 4 verse 6. The amplified version. The Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you angry? Okay? And why do you look sad and depressed and dejected? Verse 7, if you do well, he says, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, he says, sin crouches at your door. It's desires for you, but you must master it. His problem was mastery. He had not matured into mastery. Because you must understand the tenets of mastery. There are about seven stages of mastery. And of those seven, four of them are self. Four of them are self. You cannot master anything without mastering the self. You must understand how your mind works. You must understand how your body works. You must understand how your emotions work. You must know how all these things respond and how they are exercised in the spaces of mastery. Because God cannot use you a certain way when he has not dealt with you. Paul says, I don't speak several of the things which Christ has wrought by me, that I may make the Gentiles obedient in word and deed. There are things that are personal experience and God has to deal with those before he sends you into the world to heal, to restore, and cause it to be obedient, both in word and deed. That grace is available when you have been dealt with. You only take men where you have been by the grace of God. So, the anger, the bitterness, the envy, the jealousy in the heart of this man, God is telling them it's because you have not known how to master yourself. And the opposite of the master is the amateur. Because the one underlying spirit that works with the novice, the amateur, is pride. The Bible says, appoint not a novice to office. List out of pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And I can prove that Cain was proud. Why? When the Lord shows him what to do, why didn't he go back immediately and do it? Because sin had been conceived in his heart. He had conceived sin in his heart. He says, if you know not how to do, the ignorance in your heart of not knowing what to do and how to do it opens your heart to evil and you will find yourself doing and saying things you never even dreamed you would say or do against an individual. But how was your heart open to do sin and conceive wickedness in you? It was the door of the amateur, the door of ignorance. The beginner of things. The person who has not yet been exercised. Ephraim, the Bible says, is a bread half-baked. The Bible says, so he delays. It takes so long in the spaces where women bring forth child. He's delayed in the place where people produce fruit and manifest glory because he is a bread half-turned. He was not dealt with fully. And that is why the Bible teaches us not to appoint people who are not yet mature. Some men of God are slow in appointing people. And some people don't understand why they are slow in appointing people. It's very simple. Because the Bible says that all these must be proved. So as a pastor, as a bishop, as an apostle, as an evangelist, if you are to have a team around you, even if you are leading a department, you're probably in welfare department, you're probably in the finance department, prove men first. Prove men first. No office by God is ordained to be entered when a man has not been proved. But we have people who have not been proved because we think that the gifts prove the competences of the spirit. The gifts of the spirit are not core competence. The wisdom of the spirit is the core competence of the spirit. The maturity of the spirit is the core competence of the spirit, not the gifting. But today, a young man gets anointed, then two, three lemon people walk, and then he gets a hammer. Poo, poo, poo. 
and then he, da, 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 international ministries. And one day he's exposed and he finds a deeper worshiper. <laughs> and he does not know how to react when he comes in the presence of something greater. Do you know how many people cannot be elevated in the spirit because they don't know how to respond to greatness? Mark you, sir, oh, madam. There's a reason why somebody is ahead of you. There's a reason why God, in all his infinite wisdom, sees somebody ahead of you. And some of you have become prophets of doom of men that God is raising. I always want people, it's easy to discern when God is raising a voice, whether in ministry or business or any other aspect. And I warn you, if you see a voice being raised by God, never set yourself to put it down if you see that God is raising it. Because chances are that as one voice raises in the world, there's an equal measure that puts another voice down. And sadly, it might be yours that the Lord is reducing while he's amplifying the other. You never fight a rising voice. Take the wisdom of Gamaliel, if you will. He said, if these men are of God, we shall know. They're not of God. We shall know. Just let them be. So when the novice, the amateur, meets greatness, he can't honor it. He can't learn from it. He can't receive impartation from it because his heart is open to destruction. Why? It's not that Cain was a bad man. No. He just found himself in a space of a greater anointing, a greater level of worship. And he didn't know how to respond to it because he had not been taught how. He had not been told how. What does he do? He slays his brother. Because of that, he became a vagabond for the rest of his life. And his life was at risk for as long as he lived. He departs from the presence of God. This was a problem. If you knew how to do good, wouldn't you have been accepted as well? But I guess the reason why he kills his brother is because he did not know how to fix it. That's the amateur. That is why we train and teach people. Such that when you meet greatness, when a man worships better than you, you know how to do it. You know how to respond to that greatness that the next time opportunity comes your way, you'll give a sacrifice that is acceptable. That takes training. And that is why some of you should attend, or if all of us should attend discipleship classes. That is why Bible schools are recommended. Because not everybody will get it the first day. There's a few unique ones, but not everybody will get it the first day. Hallelujah, glory to God. So, we see that Cain's problem was mastery. He went into the responsibility of worship without the temperance that comes with mastery. The Bible says, they that strive for mastery must be temperate in all things, must be patterned in all things. He doesn't understand how the patterns of the spirit work, but he's trying to worship God. That is why Jesus says, they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. The amateur, the novice. The amateur, the novice. And then we go to Balaam. Let me give you a small story about Balaam so you understand who Balaam was. Balaam was not an Israelite. In fact, he was a Midianite. He was a son of one Boar. And he was a prophet. But also, he was a diviner. He knew how to live in both worlds easily. So he used to perform enchantments sometimes. But also, the Spirit of God will come upon him. And he would prophesy. 
And that is the only reason I believe that all the diviners you see in the world, the psychics and, and all these guys, clairvoyancy and what, those are people I believe in God's original plan were called to be prophets of God, but they transacted a sacred gift to darkness. And because the gift and calling of God is without repentance, Satan has used them as a medium for his communication. And so it happens. Okay? So we all know that uh, the king of Moab, Balak, calls this man Balaam and asks him, I want to reward you, I'll pay you as much as can. I just want you to curse these fellows, place a malediction on them. You know the story of how he's going to the king and, you know, his donkey is knocking things, you know, scratches his foot and what and all, but there's an angel standing in front of the donkey he cannot see and a donkey has to talk to him. Why are you beating me? Have I ever disobeyed you? Oh, but I would have killed you and da-da-da-da-da. So the angel tells him, look, you're messing up. You're not supposed to go and do this. But there was something in his heart for reward. We all know the story. Long and short, he pleads, he asks for forgiveness, but anyway, goes to the king. Now, some people think that that is where we see the adultery of this prophet, but it's not the space where we see the adultery of this prophet because by scripture we see that he repented on that particular day. In fact, the Lord let him go to Balak. He's taken on the mountain and then he sees Israel from all fashions and directions and instead of speaking evil, he prophesies on Israel, for I cannot curse whom the Lord has blessed. Remember, the angel had entreated him, if you go, only say what the Lord tells you to say. And so indeed, he blesses Israel, he cannot curse it, and of course he disturbs Balak because Balak does not know what to do. He does not know where to go. But we know that the man that we're dealing with is both prophet and diviner. In fact, if you read Numbers chapter 24, the Bible says, and when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as the other times to seek enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Not as other times to seek the enchantments to go into divination. And then he turns to the wilderness to seek the face of God. And indeed, if you read the story of Balaam, through him, God prophesies even the coming of Christ through a man who could transact in both worlds. How he shall come from the root of Jesse, etc., etc. If you read Numbers from the chapter 22, 23, 24, all of that, the stories are very clear. And we see that this was a man who was anointed by God. But he knew how to transact and prophesy before the people as the will and the spirit had given him utterance. But he also knew that he could not tread with the person of the spirit. And so he used to yield to familiar spirits to carry out the transaction. Listen, any spirit that ministers the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the end points to reward, more so if it is a prophetic ministry, that ministry is not working under the instruction and institution of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look at the girl in the book of Acts who had the spirit of divination. Same thing that was working on Balaam. The Bible says she brought her master's much gain through soothsaying. She brought her master's much gain. The familiar spirit that works on a deluded prophet seeks to reward the prophet by 
breaking through the hands and the bags and prophesying anything they can to get anything from the people. Anything that seeks to get, oh, do not come to the prophet empty-handed. That's an instruction to the worshiper. It is not a command on the door of the building. God has not called us to command men to give. Remember, the book of Acts says that if a man should give, the heart must first be made up in their giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. The prophets that we represent in the Bible had men like Naaman come and he would heal them and he would refuse to receive the gifting of the Assyrian because he knows what the Assyrian can carry. But the prophets of our day can take from the Assyrian as they can take from the Persian, can take from the Midianites as they can take from the Amorite, they can take from the Moabite or anything because they think that they can receive from everybody. Because the thing in them is gain. How much can I take? If there are 200 people, 2,000 people here, can I get 300 people each with a million shillings? And then you come and count. But which Bible do you read? The Bible is very, very clear. God's reward is on the heart that gives, not the amount. No wonder the eyes of some of our men of God are becoming dim because the Bible says the gift corrupts the wise. And Satan has known better. He has crept in unawares with folk that have money but carry no foundation. They carry no spirit in them and we've given them the altars and defiled them and because we've defiled our altars we're asking ourselves why our ministries are not growing because we have brought transactors the house of God has become a den of thieves because birds are being sold there people are exchanging money there churches and ministries are looking like they're business centers and when you don't know how to do that you're the fake one that's deception again I repeat No true prophetic spirit of God seeks gain for the man. It doesn't. Why? Because we were freely given. As has given the grace to articulate oracle. So has it given the grace for the prophet to see in the spirit. So has it given the evangelist the grace to minister to the souls. And because we are freely given, we freely give. Our reward is not in the twisting of the arms of the indifferent and the carnal. Our reward is with God who called us because when he anointed us, he did not anoint us based on our performance. He anointed us entirely on his own infinite wisdom. The mystery of his will. And some, they found other ways to do that. They're selling anointing oil and anointing water and anointing Rice and anointing porridge and anointing sodas and anointing gum, anointing shoes, anointed this and anointed that. You don't get to the prophet like that. You don't walk to the prophet like that. When you go to the prophet this way, the prophet. No wonder today we see so much of the splendor of ministry, but we don't see the fruit of ministry. The God we represent came to serve. He was not a God who sought his own. He sought to spend and be spent. And now we boast in the luxuries. We boast in the luxuries. The fivefold ministries to perfect the saints for the work of ministry to the edification of the body. That is as true for the apostle like it is for the prophet, like it is for the pastor, like it is for the evangelist. We all perfect the saint for the work of ministry. And what is the work of the ministry? To seek and serve the lost. Even if you're an apostle, we are seeking to serve the lost. We're seeking to serve the lost. What did Jesus send us to do? 
to preach the gospel to the world that men might be saved. The salvation story is still the biggest mandate of the body of Christ regardless of the office that we sit in. And the heavens applaud when one sinner comes to Christ. One sinner comes to Christ. Then a hundred miracles. Then a hundred wonders. Then a hundred signs. Then a hundred prophecies. Then a million teachings. One sinner. One sinner. One sinner. So, for some, I had a story. The man of God who called people and said, the Lord has said, go get all your money from the accounts. Bring it and it's going to multiply three times. A lady gets money of her husband that worked in the UK for a long time. He had sent her money. She had returned, I believe. The story is given that she was coming to build their, you know, home, their settling home. And she used all that money to give to the man of God. And after the given time of prophecy, the money didn't come. The woman goes to the prophet. The man of God weighs the money. The man says, did you give it to me or did you give it to God? Da, 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 da. The husband is coming back. The lady goes back home and puts a rope in her neck and hangs herself. And she dies. And it happened in this nation. So, excuse me if we are contending, but we are walking out of the order of the spirit. And the immature, when they hear this, they'll think he's attacking. The apostolic cannot say anything outside love. He cannot. We cannot do anything against the truth but for truth. But we're losing another generation in this indifference. The pastors are robbing people. We are manipulating people whichever way we can. Evangelists, we've learned the art. They even have names of people in the church who know how to get money out of people. If you call that pastor, aye, aye, aye. He'll get money from people. He knows how to manipulate money out of the hands of people. We're not saying that the church should not receive giving when it's due. But we're saying this has gone so far that even the simplest non-believer can smell balam in our churches. God help us. God help us. Those are things some of us can say and go away with it. Because even those who know the truth are afraid to speak the truth because they will think that you're attacking an individual. We are not. We're reading the Bible. We're reading the Bible. God will cause men to bless you the right way. He knows how to reward his saints. Wait on God. You will see what he will do in your life. When man called a person and told him, the Lord told me you're supposed to be paying the fees of my children. Listen, man of God, by the time God should want somebody to pay fees for your children, then that person should bear the witness of the Spirit. Because the Bible says that the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. You see, when we say we've spoken by God, from God, the prophetic can either be inspired or by manipulation be acquired. That's why we have psychics and fortune tellers who are accurate, by the way. They are accurate. Everything they say is true, in the name of true. But that's according to how men define truth. That's why Pontius Pilate asks, what is truth? Because the carnal mind cannot understand what truth is. Facts to many people are true. But you see, we don't want the next generation to hold us accountable that you knew these things and you did not share them. These are for ministers. These are for ministers. They are for ministers. Praise God. Hallelujah. Back to the story. Balaam's issue 
was not when he repented. No, he repented and God allowed him to go. Only prophesy what I tell you. But later on, Balaam did something because he was a man who needed money. He had to find his own way. So he goes to Balak and tells Balak, you know, I cannot curse whom God has blessed. But I can teach you how you can put evil in the Israelite seed. And if you can do that, then God easily will crush them. He will kill them. He will destroy them. That is why in the book of Revelations, chapter 2, he speaks to the church of Pergamum. He's addressing the church of Pergamum. And he goes down in 14th verse and says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Listen, now in the New Testament, the prophetic voice becomes a teaching. Because really what happened, after Balaam prophesied the destiny of Israel, he still needs money and he has to find a way to get money. And so what does he do? He finds a wisdom and takes Balak aside and tells him, look, let me teach you how to place a stumbling block on the children of Israel. I'll show you how you can bring evil into their camp. And when once that evil comes through, then they shall be destroyed automatically. And that is why the theologians call the heresy of Peor. What does he do? He's a Moabite king. He manipulates and finds his way to collect the Moabite women in the worship of Baal at Peor. And then he manipulates them to get the children of Israel by manipulation and bring them into demonic worship. Because in that time, when they used to worship Baal, it was not only just demonic worship, but there was also sexual encounters during that time in the form of worship. And so in Numbers 25, a story is given. These Moabite women, the daughters of Moab, go and start to connect with the children of Israel. And before we know that, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, the men of Israel, the daughters of Israel, are now in not only sexual relations, but in the worship of Baal. And when the Lord sees it, of course, the anger of God is rekindled. And he tells Moses, you know what? Destroy these people. Get every guy who leads those tribes and groups, whoever has led those groups into the worship of Baal, and kill every one of them. And indeed, they what? They killed all that were involved in Baal worship. And towards the end, one of the fellows imports a Midianite woman, not a Moabite, but a Midianite woman, okay? In the time when they're still lamenting and repenting. And then it reminds them of the connections because the Moabite and the Midianite were related. And what happens? God, by the Spirit, tells Moses, from today, the Midianites shall be your enemies. Now, if you're a student of the word, you'll ask yourself, if it was the Moabite girls that tempted the children of Israel into sexual immorality and the worship of Baal, why is it that when God is setting an enmity, he sets an enmity against the Midianite? This is why. God knows that Balaam is a Midianite. So he's not punishing just the event of killing this Moabite, but he's saying, where did the spirit of destruction 
begin from? The spirit of destruction began by a Midianite who taught the king Balak how to trick the children of Israel into, you know, sexual immorality and the worship of Baal. They used women. And so from that day, war ensued between the Israelite and the Midianite. How this Midianite woman comes in their midst to provoke that conversation, all of that, I believe, was a plan of God because he needed to get back at this guy's line of deception. And guess what? The Moabite and the Midianite are both descendants of Lot. If you read Genesis chapter 19 from about the 34th verse to the 38th, you will see that this is a time when Lot has has escaped. He goes, I think, on Zohar and then he hides somewhere. And then as he hides, one of his daughters tells the other, why don't we force our father to have sexual relations with us so we shall have children for we see that no man shall marry us. And what happens? He sleeps with both of his daughters and one is the one that begets the lineage of Moab and the other is the one that begets the lineage of the Midianites. So they were a fruit of incest. So it's amazing that the fruit of incest in this relationship carries through generationally. And we see that the ones who still by Baal worship, you know, with sexual immorality and the same spirit of incest and sexual perversion, the Jezebelic spirit that was what worked in that lineage is the same that comes to the children of Israel and destroys them. In fact, later when you read scripture, later on as one of those times the Israelites are fighting with the Midianites, Balaam was killed. He was killed. Because something always kills them. If he doesn't kill the person, he kills the ministry. And if we didn't love, we'd not tell you the truth. So why do I call him the adulterer? Because he had a communion with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he had another covenant with darkness. In Second Peter chapter 2, Verses 12, he says, these are natural brute beasts, like he called them in Jude. Made to be taken and destroyed, because they get destroyed anyway. Speak evil of the things that they understand not. The Bible says they shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of the unrighteous, as they that counted pleasure to riot in the day time. Spots they are and blemishes. Spotting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery. They are called adulterers because they transact in both worlds. And that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. Again, the unstable are the ones who can be deceived or taken by them. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. And God calls them cursed children. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor. Who loved the wages of unrighteousness but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dambas speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of a prophet. Peter calls them wells without water. Clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. See, if the Bible calls them wells that are without water, it means they have an impression of fruit and results and answers. But really, there is no fruit, there is no result and there is no answer. And you can tell by the people that sit under them for years. You start to see that something about them is not changing. The fruit of the spirit, love, patience, long-suffering is not in them. But they are wells. So for the canoe, they think the well must have water. When they look at the cloud and it's supposed to give rain, they are sure that that's a cloud of rain. But the rain does not come down. 
And he continues to say, when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they are lower through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness. Those who were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For whom a man is overcome of the same, he is brought in bondage. For after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. These fellows are born again. They've tested God. Tested God. Now, I don't want you to go judging every man and woman based on my sermon. Because you might be wrong. You might be wrong. And God will deal with you. Praise God. Hallelujah. The third one is the group called the Entitled. We're told of the gainsayings of Korah. But what do we mean by the gainsayings of Korah? God chose Moses. And in choosing Moses, he chose Aaron as a priest. They go to Egypt. They deliver the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. cross into the wilderness. And when they cross into the wilderness, one of those days, a fellow comes up. He's called Korah. The son of Izar, the son of Kohat, the son of a Levi. And then he gets a fellow called Dathan and Abiram. And the sons of Eliab and the sons of Pelet, the sons of Reuben. They took men and they rose up. That's number 16 from the first verse. Verses 2, they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. 250 priests of the assemblies, famous in the congregation, men which were renowned, were also convinced to follow Abiram, to follow Eliab, Dathan, and the leader of this movement called Korah. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. In other words, yes, you took us from Egypt, You've taken us through the wilderness. We're free. People have connected with God. They are holy. They know what to do. Why are you still imposing your headship over us? Why are you still imposing your power over us? The Bible says this humble man, Moses, when he had that, the Bible says he fell on his face and prayed to God. That's the humility that was in Moses. He was a hot-tempered fellow. But the Bible says he was the most humble man on the earth. So why would Moses go on his face? He's trying to tell them, I am not the one that put myself in this place. Any wise fellow would have changed his words the moment he saw a man whose face would glister, a man whose face would shine, going face down because he has been accused of usurping authority. Anybody that was wise would have taken back his words or at least spoken as a man with excuse. Bear with me, I know not much. Maybe let me inquire. Why are you usurping authority over us? But these fellows, they continue imposing themselves on that authority. And in the fifth verse, Moses spake unto Korah and all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he has chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Do this then. Take yourself, censors, Korah, and all the company, and put fire therein, and put in incense in them, before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon yourselves. In other words, you have overstepped the boundaries. You're the ones who have overstepped the boundaries. Not I and Aaron. And the Bible says, and when he did that, 
He says, you took too much, you sons of, of Levi. Verse 8, and Moses now said to Korah, I pray ye, sons of Levi. Now he's asking him a question anybody with common sense would know. He says, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the Lord God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. Do you take it lightly that God chose you out of the more than 300,000 people that crossed with us from Egypt to put you in positions where you could serve at the tabernacle and stand before the congregation to minister unto them? Oh, let me make it simpler. You're standing against your spiritual authority, your spiritual father. Do you think for a second, do you think, do you take it lightly that God has even elevated you to lead a program in the service? Do you take it lightly that God has even collected all the worshippers and put you on this altar to lead worship? You think it's a mean thing? It's not small. Remember, it's the anointing on the man that elevates you on that altar. If you think it's easy, make your own altar. But while you're seated on another man's altar, know how to honor what's above you. Know how to honor it. But the entitled can't get it. The entitled can't get it. Because they think it's by their own grace and anointing that they got there. You get a little guy, you give him an altar, and he thinks it's because he's anointed that you've granted him an altar. There are certain people that are so above you that by the time they give you the altar, you must understand they are believing in you. They are trying to elevate what's in you. It's grace extended to you. Know how to receive from above when you're entrusted with a man's altar. What happens with his fellows? He comes on the pulpit to build his own ministry. Before you know that, when he's off the pulpit, he shows how the man of God doesn't know He's a heretic. He doesn't know how to preach. He's interpreting things wrong. You know, he's doing this. You know, he's... Listen, even if you see that he's wrong, make your own bed first. Build your own house. And then let men judge that you have a better one. But before you have a brick on a foundation, hush. Because the winds will come and the rain will fall one day. And you will understand what it is not to have a roof over your head spiritually. But he's entitled that is why you hear people in churches demanding money. Me, pay me. I'm playing the piano. Pay me. Not mine, but pay me. Me, I'm playing the piano. Pastor, prophet, evangelist, teacher. If a man asks for a pay to play your piano, let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Because it's evident he did not come for an inheritance. He came for a pay. And that's a servant, not a son. They mean we don't reward our people. But we don't reward them because they ask for it. Even if it was not there, they would serve. Those are the things that raise anointings up. Elevate men into superior graces and ranks of the spirit. It's called service. So, Moses is asking him, do you think it's a small thing that out of the people in the Levite tribe, we could get to a point to minister before the congregation and in the service of the tabernacle, we chose you. But the entitled man can't hear that. Verse 10, he says, He has brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee. And seek ye the priest. Who do you want now to take the place of whom God has chosen Aaron? Verses 11, For which cause both 
Thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that she murmur against him? So what did they do? They even went ahead and started speaking about the weaknesses, the indifference, the confusions, the things that were touching Aaron. Aaron is this. He must be this. He must be this. He doesn't deserve to be this. He doesn't deserve to be that. But I don't blame them. You see, Aaron also has his drama. In Numbers 12 earlier, he and Miriam have judged Moses for marrying a Kushite woman, God has to retribute them. He has to rebuke them. So they bear record that Aaron is not stable. He's not stable. He's not stable. And then Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram, the two guys with whom this fellow wanted to ploy with. And the sons of Eliab, they said, we will not come up. He called them, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they refused to go. And they said, it's a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey, to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether prince over us. Now, they're telling him, in the simplest language, we are not going to come. In fact, you're the reason why we are still lost in the wilderness. We've not yet crossed. That's what they're saying. So that means they've also identified Moses' weakness. They're saying, you are the reason why we are delayed and are going to die in the wilderness. But know ye not, you who reads the word, that the Bible says that God led not the children of Israel through the land of the Philistine, even if it was shorter, for him seeing their fear of war, they would turn back to Egypt. So Moses was a man who knew the way well. He could have led the children of Israel for a shorter route of about 12 or 14 days into the promised land, but he knew that they had a spirit of fear, and the shepherd gave himself over to walk with them slowly for 40 years, but he knew the way to the promised land. This is him in Exodus telling them that God did not lead them there. He's not putting himself part of the narrative because he was not a man indifferent of God's will purposes on the way there. But he knew the weakness of these fellows, so he chooses to walk with them. And it's sometimes the heart of a priest, the heart of a pastor that is patient with the indifferent, the immature, the slow learners, and then you see a funny guy in the back thinking that the pastor is shallow because he's not preaching the stuff he wants to hear. <laughs> you see, many people are so unstable. Sometimes you test the presence of maturity because you don't know that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And the love that seeketh to defy sometimes carries patience. It's called the long suffering of God because He wills that no man perish. He says, Do not despise that because it is that long suffering and patience of the Lord, the love of God that leadeth men to repentance. He's patient even with the weak. And sometimes when your priests are a bit slower, you think that you're deeper. You're not. You're not. You're not. They're just taking everyone slowly because they could have gone with whoever could cross through the Philistine. But they were not selfish for themselves. They were living for the people. Moses refused God to kill people even when God wanted to kill them. So what happens? If you follow the story, Moses calls them with assessors. They come. And uh, what happens? God judges the matter. He was even almost killing the congregation that came to see the fight. People are funny. In fact, later if you read, even a congregation gathered to see how this thing would end. To pay loyalty and you know, homage to whoever would win. Anyway, God tells them, separate yourselves from this madness. And what happens? The ground opens up. And swallows up Korah, opens up and swallows up Dathan, Abiram. 250 guys of their own team as well were killed. Why? Because they set 
themselves against the order of the spirit. Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. But you'll ask yourself, why? What was the spirit behind it entitled? Let me explain why this spirit was a spirit of entitlement. Like I said, Korah is a son of a Levite, a descendant of the family of Isar. Now, it was in the custom of the patriarchal that the oldest family was to have the preeminence of the priesthood. It was in the order, the custom, that the oldest family in the Levite clan, the oldest families in whichever, say, if the priest had the eldest son, and that son would take over and the rest would follow, and then after that, if he has a first son, that first son will take over and the rest would follow, and then his first son would take over, and then his first son would take over. That was the order of priesthood. The rest were Levites. Now, follow me. Moses and Aaron come from a family of a man called Amran. And Amran was not in the oldest of the Levites' families. That means Korah, a son of a Levite, when you read ancient manuscripts, you realize that Izar, his father, was among some of the oldest of the families. So that means, even though Moses is leading us through, there is still a preconceived custom that even though Aaron was chosen for this course, I'm still the rightful in the lineage of the priesthood because we come preeminently from the first family of the orders of this priest in their order of patriarchal descent. That is called primogenitor. They have a custom primogenitor that the inheritance, the heritage of the priest is passed over from the eldest son and then his eldest son and then his eldest son and the rest are supposed to be Levite. So, Korah figures, the sons of Amran are not first, they're not first in the families. But because God has anointed Moses, he has chosen Aaron as a priest. This is his choice to make Aaron first. They are entitled that he's not supposed to be first. So he realizes, hmm, how do I take this priesthood? I cannot take it alone. But there's a group that can connect to me because of this patriarchal custom. And that is why when you read of Dathan, Abitham, and all these other people, the Bible says they were all sons of Reuben. Who was Reuben? Reuben was the oldest son of Jacob. Because Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. In that patriarchal order, as well, Reuben was to take over the scripture of the family to hand it over to the next. So, he says, if I can manipulate the sons of Reuben to remind them that they come first, they can gun behind me, we take over Moses and Aaron, they take over the order of kingship and leadership, I take my priesthood. So, you see, it's a long plan. He's playing a long game. He's not playing a short one. He's playing a long game. And so, by the time they come to Moses, who would you call yourself? They know what they're saying. By the time they're attacking Aaron, the priest, they're saying the order is supposed to be this way. We are entitled. That is why I tell people, when it comes to the anointing, the things of the spirit, whether you came first in the ministry, whether you're the pastor's son or daughter, whether your father is the most excellent elder in the ministry, 
whether your mother contributed the biggest amount of money to build a church, never act or think that you are entitled to certain spaces in the order of the anointing. That's not how it works. No wonder the first become last. Because when people come first, they get entitled. Because you're the firstborn, you think that you deserve that space. No. Every person who understands the anointing and glory of leadership, you learn to grow. That it's not just enough to be positional. You must leave the realm of positioning to being influential. God, through uh, David, had prophesied to Bathsheba that her son would become king. But what happens? When Adonijah goes to become king with the sons, Nathan and Bathsheba come to the king and tell him, look, the sons of the king have gone to pay tribute to the coming up king, Adonijah. But your servant Solomon stays back. Even though Solomon was the rightful heir by a prophetic word and guarantee to the daughter of Oth, Bathsheba, he still was given the wisdom to know that if you're going to become king, you don't think that you are entitled to positioning. You learn to serve. Solomon stayed a servant of his own father because he knew he was entering a great office. Adonijah claimed the order, the patriarchal order. Primogenitor. And what happens? What happens? So, we have individuals who think that they are entitled by right because they were first in this, they were first in the ministry, so you have to treat them this way. They're the first in that because they're there. You have to do this and because they're the first. Positioning is not influence. It's not influence. Yes, you're a pastor's wife. But that doesn't mean that because you're a pastor's wife, positional. It means that you will, you know, just stay. Like that, because you are a pastor's wife. No, you have to earn your place when it comes to the anointing. Seek God. Some of you, your sons, your children of the pastor. And so because you think you're the children of pastor, when pastor does this, you also think you have to do that. Your brothers, your sisters. No, those positions are positions you have to earn your space with God. Because the man of God did not get there because he was related to Pharaoh. He wasn't related to Pharaoh. And I've seen pastors who get their children, put them up in ranks quickly. Why? Because they think that because he's my son, he has to take over the mantle. No, you have to raise them up in the way they should go. And that is why pastors' kids are spoiled. The man from positioning, priest, apostle, prophet, teacher, is a positional. There are three things you do as a leader that take you to the spaces of influence. One, you learn to add value to yourself. Two, you learn to support people. You become a support function. You learn to serve people. Three, you set your own pace. That's the thing that gives you a distinction. Yes, people will honor you, because you're a pastor. But you're not going to continue being honored because you're a pastor. You must find your God. They should respect you because you're a leader in the fellowship. But you must find God either way. There is no shortcut to this. 
There's no shortcut to this. And that's why ministries are breaking and dying. Because novices are in positions because they're positional. They're positional. And your child is a priest because you are a priest. It's not how it works. And so we see that the ploy of Korah was bigger than what we see by sight. And God has a way of making his point to the entitled. What did he do? The ground swallowed and killed them. And then he says, how do I make sure that this never happens? Numbers 17 tells all the tribes, get all the leaders of your tribes from each tribe and get an almond tree. And then he wrote names of the leaders of those tribes. All the twelve, because he knew this thing can come back. And then he gets Aaron's name as devil and puts it on a rod. And then he gets these sticks, the twelve tribes. He takes it into the presence. Now, no Levite could doubt that Aaron was God's choice. He knew it. But what of the other tribes? Reuben's boys have become funny. What of the rest? What if anybody else comes up with some random entitlement? They get the sticks of almond, put them before the ark, covenant. And the Bible says, on the next day, the rod of Aaron budded out of the twelve to make them understand that this fellow was anointed by me, not by your order of patriarchal custom, not by your recommendation later, when God has anointed somebody, he has anointed them. And guess what? Remember they put a memory. They got the senses of these guys that had died and put a memory of them to remind Israel never to overstep some boundaries. And so as the stick of Aaron, it was put in the presence of God forever to always remind anybody that enters that there are certain places you don't overstep. God anoints men and women by choice. I feel sorry for people who have a way they easily disqualify the anointed of God. Even me, I can do this. She's teaching. Even me, I can teach. You know. Hey, you see, no, 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 no. God knows why he put that person there. He doesn't position us because of our abilities. No. He positions us out of his own infinite wisdom and knowledge. God does not weigh our holiness and purity to appoint us in offices. No. He sees something way bigger than you can ever understand. So it's a small thing for you to judge the competence of a man or a woman of God because you're not the one who put them up there. And this is what Moses was trying to tell them. He's asking, why are you fighting God? Why are you setting yourself against God to fight the Lord's anointed? This is something I learned early. I don't fight the Lord's anointed. They mean they can't fight me. They can't. They have right. You can say anything you can about Apostle Grace. You can write anything you want about Apostle Grace. But I don't defile my altar with men's names. And my men and women of God in this ministry, the reason why you've never heard wars in Fanero 
is because this altar does not fight. It doesn't know how to fight. We know how to pray. We know how to pray. I have never heard any of my pastors setting himself against another man of God. My men of God are not entitled. They are not entitled. Because it's not in us. My wife is not entitled. I am not entitled. I have never imposed myself on a man in this ministry to do something I could do with my own hands. They serve only because they will. And I have my reasons. I just need to build my value. I just need to seek God and read the word and pray and be a support to the weak and the falling. Love them the way I have to love them in their foolishness and wisdom. Be patient with them and wait until one day God gets them to where they should be. And oh man, I fought with some over the years and I look back and I'm like, God, I thank you that are patient with this particular person because now those are the people that are building the ministry. You learn to be patient. I can never set myself to fight my own seed. I don't do that. They can say anything about me, but I cannot set myself to fight my own seed because I also don't know. They might be the rising voice. And I'm held in contempt. I don't touch it. But two also, I'm doing that because it's never going to be or it should never be hard in my ministry, that we broke that order. Otherwise, we'd be the same as Korah and the sons of Reuben. We're not entitled people. And I ask you, minister, don't feel entitled. I know a man, they call him, uh, Pastor so-and-so, so, hey, 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 hey. I'm bishop. So he's saying that, address me even with the right title. You must, no, listen, even if you call me Grace, Get me a lame man and a blind eye, I'll show you. Give me a dead body, I'll show you. Give me a mic, I'll show you. But it doesn't matter whether I walk on the streets alone or without anybody. Because my security is not in men. Neither their praise or disqualification. My title is only with God. Who called me before us from my mother's womb? And with that, I'm satisfied in what God has called me to be. The amateur, the adulterer who could transact in two worlds, they're entitled. That is the reason why we see madness in the body of Christ. All this hatred, backbiting, you know, robbery, uh, lying, manipulation, speaking evil, false testimonies about men of God, all of that is as a result of these foundations. I know a man who could not think twice to tell a lie about another man of God. But the Bible says, with those that know not how to eat with them, he could easily tell a lie about another man. He could easily speak evil about another man if only the person he's speaking to will give him dice. And I said, God, how do you deal with these ones? Say, so it's simple. Sentence on an evil work is not done speedily. So they continue to be wicked. And every other day, their voices are reduced until one day they will look back and they will just be speaking to chairs. God has a way of pulling men down. 
Bible says you shall not fight. For the Lord shall fight for you. Did Exodus 14, 14? He shall fight for you. God has a way of fighting. Yes, you're at work and people are frustrating you. They're not doing the things you want them to do. That's their problem. You continue doing what God called you to do. What if somebody is funny? Oh, and then you hear a person, I quit serving because the person in the committee was frustrating. No, listen. Learn to fight spiritually. And God cannot fight for you when you're not quiet. So what Exodus 14, 14 said. He says, the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Keep quiet. Oh, you're a thief. Keep quiet. You're an adulterer. Keep quiet. You're this. You just keep quiet and see God fight for you. That's maturity. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I'm going to allow a few questions. Yes, ask. Wow. Praise the Lord. There's an Esther from Malaysia. Esther from Malaysia. Wonderful question. Esther, one, speak the truth in love. I am speaking. There's somebody who will think I'm attacking them. That's their problem. I know who called me. I know what he told me to say and how to say it. And let God judge. But there's somebody who has heard this. And their lives have been changed. They're never going to pattern themselves against deception. So we teach. Two, love, unconditional. Unconditional. Because some of these people are bleeding. They're dealing with things that are bigger than them. And mutually as a Christian, you must understand and love them unconditionally. Forgive them unconditionally and relentlessly. Just let go and know this is who they are. I will pray for them. That love causes us to pray for them. I have prayed for my enemies more than anyone I know. I pray for them. In fact, one time, a fellow spoke evil about me and I fasted for 90 days for him. For him. The Lord is my witness. I prayed and fasted for 90 days for that person because they were so wicked to be alive. So it's love, that love, six. But three also, as ministers of the gospel, if you know Esther, you're a minister, or anybody as a minister, be very careful who you submit to. Be very careful. Because like the children of Reuben were destroyed, they were destroyed because they gave heed to a deceiving spirit in Korah. They were destroyed. And some people think that God is going to deal with only that fellow. No, some of you know enough not to be under certain roofs. The Bible says that when the ruler, a king or a minister in Proverbs, heeds to deception or lies, the Bible says his servants become wicked. They don't choose to become wicked. They just find themselves wicked. I have seen people who sat under wicked men, people who are very good people. And when you look at them, they became wicked too. They did stuff even they themselves get shocked to do. Proverbs 29, 11, if a ruler hearken to lies. All his servants are wicked. They become wicked. It's easy to spread that into the ministry. That's the power of association. Next question. This one is from Raj. Mm -hmm. How do you add value to yourself as a minister and a servant to a man of God? Invest in yourself. 
do all things without complaining and murmuring. Stop wailing. There are people who love cheap talk. Eh? Oh, this guy did this to me. Oh, da, 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 they're doing this. Da, 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 da. Message version, Philippians 2.14. He says, do everything readily, cheerfully, not bickering, no second guessing. Don't bicker. Okay? Avail yourself for anything that should teach you. Learn to invest in yourself. Because ministries don't need your expertise. Ministries need your faithfulness. Give me a faithful man, I'll make him skillful in anything. Your expertises are many. The faithful are few. The faithful are few. You must be a faithful steward. As I said, invest in yourself. Learn to invest in your life. Add value to you. How much do you read the word? How much do you heed? Oh, like me, I'm a nasha. Oh, so you think that pastors should read the word and not you because you're a nasha? That is why some people, as the ministry grows, this any man of God can see it. There are levels the ministry is elevated. This has happened to me several times where God will come to me in a vision and tell me, you have gotten to this level. This person has been around you this long and there's something about them that just can't grow to this level because of how they see you or do things, familiarity, bickering, backstabbing, you know, cheap talk, gossip, slander. And God says, I'm going to take this one out of your order. Not out of the ministry, but out of this order and just wait for them to mature. And somebody comes and tells you, oh, you know, I don't think I can serve here. And you know it's God doing it. And you let them sit in the ministry. If it's really indeed the leading of the Lord, we'll see the fruit. If it was the Lord saying they were not ready, he knows how to make them ready. The one thing you don't lose as a man of God, you love them unconditionally. You pray for them. Because they have their own time. And they can be exalted tomorrow and even be thrown 20 levels higher. But while they're still on that road as a father, spiritual mother, be patient with them. So some people sometimes when ministries grow and are getting elevated, you must grow along. If your man of God has gone into the certain dimension of the spirit and you sense that there's something he's entering into, why should you as an usher just stay ushering? No. Connect to that oil that is elevating that man. That is what they call adding value to yourself. If he's a seeker, seek. If your man of God is fasting for something, ask yourself, why is he fasting? What's my part in this Lord? Because you go to a ministry to grow. You don't go to a ministry just to help them do what you know how to do because without you they can do nothing. Listen, the church is not ours, not even mine. Fanero is not Grace Lubega. It is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And even if I was long gone, this vision will continue because God is jealous. He has a zeal concerning his house. So, because I'm a pastor, it doesn't mean that I should just sit back and just, yeah, no, no, no. No, I too have to add value. Have to read the word. Have to seek God for you. I have to pray for my people every night. We intercede even for those who never know that we pray for them. You see? But it's because I have to add value in myself. Yes. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, Chris Machado, there's no difference. 
you cannot fight what you honor. There are two things when you respond to the weakness, when you see weakness in what you honor. The first thing that grips your heart is love. And that love constrains you. It either constrains you to pray or to cover the sin, the multitude. Love covers a multitude of sin. The revelation of love does that. You find yourself covering and praying for the individual. That's what they call honor. You cannot say that you honor, but you fight. It's just not work. Just don't work. No, because that's what love does. It's like when we're saying we're rebuking people in the church. Okay, I've preached a rebuking sort of message. But because I walk in love, I can't mention a man's name or ministry or even give a clue to that ministry. Well, people can pick it because they're spiritual or somebody can assume they are so and sometimes they are wrong. But I cannot mention a man's name or a ministry. There's a reason because I walk in love. And to walk out of love is death. You see? Simon Peter Joseph, what's the redeeming path for one who has frustrated the anointing through patterning themselves to the three characteristics spoken of today? Well, for the New Testament, Simon, there will always be redemption. There will always be redemption. Wherever a man chooses to begin from. The Bible speaks of repentance, the changing of the mind, metanoia. God says, bring forth a fruit in accordance to your repentance. This is the glory of redemption. The fruit that accords to the repentance. The glory of redemption comes that way. How? If you know that you've been disobedient and disloyal to your man of God, ask God for another opportunity to serve him. But while you're there, follow the patterns and say, God, I might have messed up here. But you see, because it's not your end. It can be, if you don't learn, you stay pompous and proud. But it's not usually your end. God can actually begin from there and still throw you far than even the man of God, if he has to. Because he's not limited in love and work. So yes, there is redemption. And yes, there is the love and grace of God that is there. But sadly, usually people who fall that extreme, the Bible says it's hard to restore them. Even Peter says it. He says that, they have tested something. If somebody has tested a certain anointing, if somebody has tested a certain glory, it is hard to get them to repentance because even with that test, they still can set themselves against divine purpose and pattern. Those are dangerous. It only takes the grace of God. But if it comes, repentance comes to them, whew, God can still work. Mm. Uh, she says, How do we deal with pain and unrest due to you see many being manipulated into giving salvation and service? Yeah, by the way, let me talk about that. People are manipulated into submission. I'm your spiritual father. You have to submit. If you don't, you will die. <laughs> yeah, you know, like robbing and the rest. How do we help? Sarah, we pray. We pray. And we speak the truth in love. If you examine yourself and you feel you're not speaking love, but you're speaking after jealousy, envy, strife, hush. Until you're sure you can speak in love. But if you don't feel that you can really eh, get there, then the work is prayer. We pray and we speak when we can. Okay? That is why, for example, I don't give opinions about people off my altar. Because, for example, if you go on Facebook, Facebook is a secular altar. I can't write about a man of God on Facebook. No. But I can share on my altar because you tuned in for a purpose. 
and you can interpret whatever you want. God judge you. Okay? Because I know believers, you share something, ah, that's me, he's attacking. You know, the believers were like that, were so paranoid. But if you're wrong, you're in trouble. <laughs> but if you're the one, am I speaking in love or not? See, those are questions. But by and large, for me, the foundation still takes us back to love, agape. And love constrains us to pray for them, the weak, the fallen, but to share when you can. In love, don't speak anything. Don't speak out of love. Speak the truth in love. That's the only way we grow up into all things, the Bible says. Yes. Monica, Last question. Mm-hmm. Monica from Jordan. Is it a must for a pastor's wife to be a pastor? It's not a must, though. Some pastor's wives grow into it. Some got married to women who were pastors. I know pastors whose wives are worshippers. I know pastors whose wives are, you know, child ministry, regardless of whether you call them. The challenge is not, can a pastor's wife be? They can be anything. They can be anything. The question is, are they it by God? Or does the pastor take advantage of his position to enforce their leadership. Those are the two things. You understand what I'm saying? And when I say that, it I mean, therefore, that you should go to your pastor's wife and tell her, you, eh? You have to earn your place, eh? No, listen, they were already placed there. You didn't put them there. So respect that they are the pastor's wife. Respect that they're his wife. Because to disrespect the pastor's wife is to disrespect him. There's no difference. You see that? But... It's incumbent of the pastor's wife to know what to do, to seek God as well, to do the things that everybody has to. Like I said, the kingdom of God is not a monarchy. No, it's a relational realm. Everybody must have a relationship with God. Okay, one last question. This is very related to the question. Susan, I'm here. How do I tell Simple. Susan, if you feel you're not anointed, you're not. You can't be anointed and not know. Let me pray for those that are watching and are listening right now. Whatever you've been dealing with, whatever you've been fighting with as an individual in your ministry, with your men of God, with the people you serve with, As a minister, I pray that may God give you wisdom. May God give you grace. May he preserve you from the deception that ludes the world. I pray that the ways of Korah, the ways of Cain, the ways of Balaam will be far away. That you shall not be a frustration in the feasts of charity. You will not be a sport in the feasts of charity. The expressions of love touching the kingdom. And if there's anybody that has been struggling with that, I pray to God that you be free in the name of Jesus. So under that, I pray to God that may God deliver you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The message you have just heard was brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number 41 466 4291 or email us at at gmail.com. You can also find us on the web at www.funero.org or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowships at Uma Multipurpose Hall from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can also catch the live stream at livestream.com slash Fenero. Fenero, make manifest.